performance practice on electric violin, just all the kind of things like uh, wor working with a live looping pedal, uh, sound design, what kind of distortion sounds good, how to balance your levels, what kind of delay sounds good, and how it works in a musical context. Um, sometimes uh, um, someone will bring me a piece and I'll say, well, this would sound great if you add a chorus pedal there or uh, a phaser in that section. And how do you make that really cut through and not sound hidden or buried in the mix? Those kind of things, like no one ever taught me that in conservatory. Um, I like working, because I've, I've been doing that for 25 years and trying to you know make the electric violin sound as good as I, as I can. And it's a different art. Um, the, the more I, the, the, the more I uh, continue, the more I realize it's really its own thing. Um, I, I think a lot of traditional string players approach electric instruments and are instantly frustrated or disappointed if it doesn't exactly feel and sound like your acoustic instrument. Um, I think you kind of have to accept it as its own instrument with its own idiomatic things. Welcome to String Sessions, the Music Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Farrar, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, the electric violinist, teacher, and composer, Joe Denenzone. Joe is the lead singer and electric violinist for the progressive rock band Stratospherius, which has released numerous critically acclaimed CDs and has just released their newest CD and DVD, which will have its debut concert here in New York on May 31st. Joe is also a BMI jazz composer grant recipient and winner of the John Lennon Songwriting Contest. He has written over 200 string quartets, numerous solo pieces, and currently sits on the board of advisors for Composers Now. As you'll hear in this episode, he has a background in classical violin and is a very experienced teacher within the electric jazz and rock worlds. I was very happy to speak with him about his career, some of the skills needed to improvise and compose on the violin, as well as the new release that his band has coming out and which will be having its show at the Iridium on the 31st. If you enjoy this episode, I really hope you'll take the time to subscribe and share it with friends and leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts. We have a lot of exciting things planned for the show coming up, so stay tuned. For now, enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my great pleasure to have as our guest today, Joe Denenson, um, who, as you have already heard in my introduction, is a quite a prolific teacher and performer and recording artist in a number of different genres and uh, quite prolific on a, a number of different platforms. And it is my pleasure to have him here to talk a little bit about his experience in the variety of ways that the violin can be used, um, both electronically uh, and also as a part of larger ensembles that are perhaps not what we traditionally think of for the violin. And that is uh, a wonderful thing to see being expanded in, in this generation. And I'm so happy to have you here. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joanne. It's an honor. I'm very, very glad to talk to you. So for, for those who are not aware, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got started in, in being interested in combining electronics with the violin and with with fiddle like what was that what was that first impetus that that had you um want to experiment with that well it, it was kind of a a weird winding road that i took because i come from a very traditional 
family of Russian classical musicians. Uh, my father is a violinist. He just retired from Cleveland Orchestra after 44 years. And my mother's a concert pianist, and they uh, run a music school out of their house. Um, and I was handed a violin when I was five, and I took piano from my mother, went to Cleveland Institute of Music, did Suzuki, um, you know, studied with my father, who was a very stern teacher. But we were immigrants, and I felt like a misfit. I didn't know the language. You know, came here when I was four years old. And I kind of fell in love with uh, what was on the radio. Um, I fell in love with pop culture and rock and ro rock and roll primarily, pop music. Um, and I really wanted to connect to people. And I loved to perform. So, you know, I loved to sing. I would play my school talent show and play violin and piano. Um, but uh, somewhere around age 12 or 13, I started writing songs. And I took up electric bass because I, I wanted to play rock music. And I had no concept that it could be done on a violin. I was leading parallel life, playing classical violin, playing in youth orchestra, going to my lessons at CIM. And then I got into rock bands playing electric bass. And then later I picked up guitar. And I really, uh, you know, in high school, I got interested in jazz as well. So I, I had a really great mentor uh, named Al Crassel. He was a local Cleveland guitar player uh, who taught me about Miles Davis and... Uh, John Coltrane and um, later introduced me to Jean-Luc Ponty and Stefan Grappelli. Um, so I, basically I was uh, writing songs and playing electric guitar and, and bass in bands and um, in jazz band in my high school and playing in Cleveland Youth Orchestra. So at one point um, there was a local Cleveland celebrity named Michael Stanley who um, was had a few hits in the 70s and 80s and he had the attendance record at uh, Ridgefield Coliseum in Cleveland. He would sell out and play huge stadiums, not stadiums, but, you know, big venues. And his twin daughters went to my high school. So he attended and heard me play violin, classical violin, and invited me to play with his band on stage. I was 16. And up to that point, I had never improvised on the violin. I was strictly classical on the violin, but I knew how to improvise on other instruments, bass and electric guitar. Um, so... I just kind of jumped in and I knew the musical language of blues and, and rock playing, but I had never even tried it on the violin. There was, I had no role models at the time. So it just kind of came to me. And that was a big, uh, uh, what's the word? Breaking point, shifting point, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. So um, from that point, I kind of got more into getting to know um, players like Jean-Luc Ponty, Jerry Goodman, uh, Stefan Grappelli, Joe Venuti, all these classic improvising fiddlers, and realized I'm, I'm pretty good at this, and I don't know anybody that's doing it. <laughs> you know, there's a million great guitar players. Um, and then, you know, I discovered electric violin when I heard Jean-Luc and, and Jerry Goodman and players like that. And when you play guitar, you inevitably uh, get to know guitar pedals, uh, effects like distortion and delay and wah. Um, and I went to college at uh, Indiana University. I majored in jazz violin and classical violin. So I bought my first six string electric violin in, in while I was in college, plugged it in through my guitar rig and fell in love. And that's kind of, you know, my path in life was set. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I love this more than anything. Um, so, you know, it's, you choose an instrument, just you're drawn to things for whatever reason and you fall in love and that's what you end up wanting to do. You know, and I, in my professional life, Half the time I play acoustic and half the time I play electric, depending on 
the gig I'm doing. Yeah, that was going to be my, my follow up is how much um, do you because I've heard that you, of course, do still play acoustic, but I was wondering what that that ratio was, but it is still it's very, it's very even with the people that you had when you were growing up. Clearly, you came from, as you've mentioned, you know, a very um, high level uh, classical education in terms of just what was around you and then who you were actually learning from, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Do you feel did you feel right away once you began um, experimenting with improvisation on the violin that there was a lot of support for that or did you feel like uh, people were kind of looking sideways at it you know because I for for some people um, I've had on as guests it was very supportive right away and for others it kind of took some time to convince people <laughs> do you mean from your immediate family or from... uh, basically for your immediate family but also more just like the people who were around you in your life at that time whether that was teachers or just kind of the environment the musical environment you were in um, I never felt any pushback. Uh, my parents were always very supportive, although secretly I think they wanted me to follow in their footsteps playing an orchestra. They kind of accepted my the path that I chose eventually. Um, but yeah, I, everybody was, was pretty cool about it, pretty supportive. And I really didn't get into playing jazz and rock violin till I was like finishing high school and going to college, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But going going to a place like Indiana University, which is pretty traditional conservatory. I mean, you have a jazz department. I was one of three elect, uh, jazz violinists there at the time, and I was I had long hair. I I was kind of a misfit in both the jazz and the classical world. So I I was kind of marching to my own drummer, so to speak. But I'm good with yeah. that. It's always been the case. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so so in thinking about it, um, if there are if someone who's listening uh, has always kind of felt drawn to playing violin or another string instrument, obviously, you know, in in a way that is non-traditional, at least for the classical world, you mentioned that you had already been learning to improvise and, you know, had really lovely teachers uh, for those types of skills, but on a different instrument. Um, do you think that there is an uh, there is now clearly you also teach so there's a lot of good programs out there now, which is wonderful in, in the musical world so there's more support for that. Do you think that there's um, an advantage to someone learning to improvise on another instrument or can it all just can that learning process happen just as easily on the violin these days. Well, I'll say this these days there are uh, so many more resources around than when I was a kid. I mean there's so many camps there's at least four uh, degree programs, bachelor's and master's in electric strings or alternate style, alternative styles, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, there's as far as summer activities, there's Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp, where I've been teaching for a long time. Um, there's a creative strings workshop, Christian House, uh, Mike Block's camp, I can go on and on. Um, so I had to figure things out for myself. And when you, the advantage I always tell people studying with other instrumentalists is you get away from the cliches of your own instrument. If someone's, if, if you're learning a, a great jazz piano solo, an Oscar Peterson solo, trying to figure out how to phrase that and how to finger that on the violin, you get away from some of these violinistic things that you do. And that, that it's a good way to think outside the box. Um, and for me, having spent a lot of years playing bass and guitar, I approach the violin from that standpoint as well, you know. Um, so uh, you know, I, maybe I'm taking work work away from myself. <laughs> At the same time, you know, it's great to study with with other string players as well. So it's a little bit of both, you know. 
No, that's very true. And I think that that's one thing, even, I mean, if, even if you're just playing classical music, I think that's, that's really important because sometimes people get so wrapped up in learning just from like another cellist, if they're a cellist or another violinist, if they're a violinist and really there's, there's so many ways that our instruments can sort of trap us if we are only focused on that one. So I think that's, that's a really lovely message in all different genres of music. And especially if you, if you plan on being a composer, uh, it's so great to study another instrument or study with another instrumentalist to get into the mind of another instrument, you know, and, and understand it better. Did you also study composition at some point, or is that something that you just kind of taught yourself and have, have picked up as you were doing that when you were younger? I, I never formally, I, I briefly took a composition class with Ludmilla Olela in uh, Manhattan School of Music when I was doing my master's there. Um, but I, looking back, I was in such a hurry to graduate. I, I don't think I took full advantage of what you, <laughs> my head was already, <laughs> but I, I just picked up a lot of stuff. Um, and I, I love, you know, I started out primarily as a songwriter. I love writing catchy songs. I like writing earworms and I still do. Um, so I was doing that since I was 12, just writing. Um, and then I got more into classical and jazz composition in adulthood and I, you know i've written i wrote an electric violin concerto a few years ago and i, I wrote some pieces for rachel barton pine um and a, and a few other things and for my street court plantain so i i want to get more into that world a little bit with bringing my influences and uh, i have deep respect for daryl I, I love his concertos and his pieces so. yes uh, for those who are not aware my, my husband uh who's also a friend of joe's is uh, also a composer so <laughs> he plays some electric fiddle but he does not <laughs> doesn't do what you do so it's all Very inspiring. It's all different ways <laughs> yeah, yeah. um so i think one of the questions is always interesting for me especially for uh people who are doing things well, actually, it applies to pretty much all of us, no matter what we're doing in the music world. What misconceptions have you found are pretty common when people think like they ask you questions about what you do or they're curious? For example, this podcast is aimed at parents of young musicians. Do you think that there are misconceptions that either young students or their parents bring to? Oh, OK, so I, either I want to learn to improvise or, or get involved in this world or, you know, my child does. Are there misconceptions that you frequently have to break down for people when they first start or? Um, well, um, among classical musicians, this happens a lot, or um, there's a certain mentality sometimes that, oh, I could take one jazz lesson and, and I can be a master improviser <laughs> because I, I can play the, uh, uh, all the Paganini caprices. I'm, I'm, I'm a badass. I can do anything, you know? And then, you, they you, they realize it's years and years and years of, of work. It's a different brain. You're using a different part of your brain when you're learning improvisation on your instrument. You're, you know, there's so much focus in classical training on phrasing and, and good technique, and, uh, and that's all important. But um, in jazz, you're, you're juggling theory in your head in real time, you know, and interacting with people on a different level. Or in any improvised music, not just jazz. So it's, it's just a different way of thinking and it takes years and years and also full absorption. You have to listen to so much music all the time and live in it and, and go to a jam session and sound bad and mess up and embarrass yourself over and over and over again until you figure out what works and what doesn't work. So, the, sorry, I'm rambling, but 
No, no, no. It's all, it's all good. It's, it's all very true. <laughs> the main difference between um, the mentality of classical musicians and the mentality of uh, improvising artists is uh, in, in classical music, you're striving for perfection. In improvised music, you're celebrating imperfection and seeing imperfection and mistakes as opportunities. And that's a very different mental shift to make, you know. And I know people who are very accomplished class musicians who are really afraid to be wrong, you know, to, um, it, it's the concept of there is no wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to, to study that and, and explore how people learn and how, how they think about music and approach music making. You know? So do you feel like when you were first learning to switch your improvisational skills from one instrument over to the violin, was that, was that an easier transition you think because you already had that because I was thinking for myself I play I play mostly like outside of classical I play a lot of Scottish fiddle and and Irish and that doesn't have quite this I mean there's improvisation but it's not obviously the same as as other styles because it has very strict rules that are very different um and that is something that as a classical musician I recognize exactly what you're saying about there is something where you have to break down that uh connection to perfection or that um, that fear of, of mistakes. Do you feel like you had less of that because of where you came from? Or did you also kind of face that when you switched to the violin with it? Um, well, I, I think what's, I think it's a multi-tiered question. When I, um, the first time I started improvising, tried improvising on the violin, I'd been listening to a lot of rock and, and jazz and blues music for many years. So it was in my head. It was just a matter of figuring out the fingerings. You know, I knew the phrasing. Um, as far as um, what was the second part of the question? <laughs> well, basically being afraid of mistakes. You know what I mean? Like having that mindset shift of of celebrating kind of the messy not not messiness. That's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. That that ability to break down some of the mental block, shall we say? Yeah, I think it's it's um, about. You know, friend, my good friend Sam Bartfeld said it best. He's a great jazz violinist um, who also toured with Bruce Springsteen. He said, in order to be a good improviser, you have to make yourself vulnerable. And I think he really hit the nail on the head. You have to kind of say, look, world, here I am. Completely open yourself up. And anything that comes out of you, you have to accept it and kind of turn it into something interesting. And, yeah. and that's, that takes time to, it's a mental, it's a lot of mental work. Absolutely. Um, I will say this for me, and it's kind of backwards maybe for a lot of people, I get more nervous when I have to play something that's totally written out and scripted. If I have to play a concerto, I get more nervous than when I go on stage and I have no idea what I'm about to do, who I'm about to play with, what I'm going to play. I, I'm, that's my comfort zone. <laughs> it's the opposite maybe of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, no, but uh, I, that is very, very interesting. So when you have someone who's, you've, you've mentioned, and I, I feel like this is, it bears repeating a million times, but I've, you've now said it a few times um, that listening and obviously the fact that this is a it's a long process that has to do with some biosmosis of kind of what what you sort of have inside of you because you've listened for so long. So I'm assuming that's one of the, the keys that you would say is important for young people who are considering wanting to do more improvisation or venturing into other genres. Is there is there a particular way that you think that that listening should should interact with their playing or any other advice around that? Well, it's a combination of things. Um, I had to take uh, styles and analysis classes in, in college in, in 
jazz, uh, major game jazz, and that's where you transcribe and analyze solos of some of the great instrumentalists. And um, you could take a solo by John Coltrane, for example, and learn it inside out, learn it in every, in every key, but not just learn the notes, learn the phrasing, which means you know he's not doing classical violin vibrato on a saxophone. He's bending certain notes um, a certain way and trying to really imitate the phrasing, you know, and take some of the your favorite phrases and you know change them up, make them your own. And there's years years of doing that. I've transcribed a lot of guitar player guitar solos. I'm a big fan of guitar, like Steve Vai and and uh, Jimi Hendrix and those kinds of players. Um, so it's just it's also learning the the, the dialect of, of music you wouldn't approach a scottish fiddle tune with classical vibrato and and using your full bow that's the other thing using a lot of bow uh, when you're playing classical music you're projecting to the back of carnegie hall or wherever you're playing um in a lot of jazz and fiddle music i see them using like a tiny bit of bow for articulation to get the groove right and because it's amplified different kind of playing you know different kind of vibrato different kind of playing a different kind of bowing. So um, all these kinds of things. And also, so transcribing, uh, writing, and going to jam sessions, getting into situations where you're playing the music and not having these expectations to be perfect right away. Just knowing that you're going to be sloppy and, and play stuff that sounds wrong, but you have to go through that in order to figure out what works. Um, so actually, when I was in the summers in, uh, between college, I'd go to Cleveland and I booked a bunch of gigs. Uh, that was my summer job. I booked duo, trio gigs at coffee shops and bookstores in Cleveland and would hire the best local jazz musicians and let them teach me. <laughs> I would, and, the, and they would surprisingly take the gigs, even though I was some unknown kid. I had a friend who kind of inspired me to do it because he was doing it. And that was a great way to learn. That is very awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that that clearly it's the there's analysis involved, obviously, as, as you mentioned, of being able to break down what is really going on in various solos on different instruments so that you can better understand how that might play out on your own instrument or through your own style. But then there's also just the getting your feet wet and and actually playing with others or and or going to places and listening to others if you're not quite at the, the point where you're ready to play with them yet. Yeah. Um, in your own teaching, so you also, can you tell us just a little bit about your 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 teaching work? Because I know that you're a part of, as you mentioned, the, the Mark Wood Camp. Um, what other places do you teach? Um, well, currently I'm an adjunct faculty member at the Multi-Style Strings Program mm -hmm. in New Jersey City University. Um, they have a bachelor's and master's degree. They, it, it's a brand new program. Uh, it's headed by Martha Mook, and uh, it's a really good faculty. Regina Carter is there, Jeremy Kittle, uh, Dave Egger. So um, that's fun because we have uh, people from all over the world who, you know, some of them are more interested in electric violin uh, or viola or cello. Others are, are into different styles of fiddle music or more traditional jazz or whatever it is. I had a student who wanted to do, you know, vocal and electric violin, flamenco music with uh, a lot of other influences. So we basically help people find their voice uh, who are not interested in just, you know, going the traditional classical route. Uh, mm -hmm. and so I, I've been teaching all my life. 
I teach privately. I teach on um, streammasters.com. Uh, I've been teaching at Mark Wood camp for 13 years. Um, I've taught at Mark O'Connor's camp, uh, Fiddle Hell, Julie Lyon Lieberman's um, Strings Without Boundaries. So it's a big passion of mine. And I wrote a book called Plugging In about um, electric violin and improvisation. Um, 10 years ago, I wrote this book and I, I need to update it actually, <laughs> do a new edition. Yeah, I will, I will link to a lot of those in the show notes. For those who are listening, I'll, I'll put those links in. So, um, But it's all on my website, uh, mm -hmm. joeeviolin.com. That's the easiest way to find me. So you're teaching in a number of different um, you know, ways and locations, some of which are more like camp styles where you are there sort of in an intense way with people for a short period of time and others where you're working more long-term with them. Are there, you've, you've mentioned like the, the need for analysis and also for listening. Are there other things that you find oftentimes are assignments that you, that you give or, or common things that you, um, there are pitfalls that you're addressing right away with students that are learning from you. I'm always curious, like for myself, I know kind of some of the, the things I'll probably end up working with people on like right away. Is there, are there things that you <laughs> know, you're probably like, yep, we're going to deal with that right away. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I discovered performance practice on electric violin, just all the kind of things like, uh, wor working with a live looping pedal. Uh, sound design, what kind of distortion sounds good, how to balance your levels, what kind of delay sounds good, and how it works in a musical context. Um, sometimes uh, um, someone will bring me a piece and I'll say, well, this would sound great if you add a chorus pedal there or uh, a phaser in that section. And how do you make that really cut through and not sound hidden or buried in the mix? Those kind of things, like no one ever taught me that in conservatory. Um, I like working because I've I've been doing that for twenty five years and trying to you know make the electric violin sound as good as I as I can. And it's a different art. Um, the the more I the 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 more I uh, continue, the more I realize it's really its own thing. Um, I I think a lot of traditional string players approach electric instruments and are instantly frustrated or disappointed if it doesn't exactly feel and sound like your acoustic instrument. Um, I think you kind of have to accept it as its own instrument with its own idiomatic things. So that's, a, that's a something I really like to explore with students. Yeah, which also means making sure that they have a certain level of comfort with the technology that is involved as opposed to, you know, just kind of expecting something to be able to be, you know, plugged in and then it's instantaneous. Like you said, there's, I'm, I'm imagining there's quite a bit to, to actually making the, the sound fit both the style and the context that you're playing outside of just even knowing how to work with the pedals and the loops and stuff like that. So then you have to have time, you have to give yourself time to get familiar with the, with the tech, which I'm sure is also changing quite a bit as time goes on. So <laughs> I don't seem to be the guy that keeps up with all the new tech. <laughs> Believe it or not. I, I do a lot, I work a lot of, with a lot of technology, but I'm old school. Like mm -hmm. guys, I have friends whose job it is to get all the latest gear and learn it right away and do videos about it. I can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. But, but, you know, um, there's certain universal things like, you know, learning how to work with distortion or how to work a watt pedal and, and all that stuff. Um, the thing with electric violin, there's layers because you have to have a good foundation a good technical foundation on the instrument that comes from playing Bach, playing uh, 
Kreutzer etudes and all the things that we train to do, you know, you, you have to have that foundation. There's no shortcut there. And then learning how to improvise. And then there's the third layer of working with all these effects and the timing and uh, all that stuff. So it, it may seem like a lot. Um, yeah. But I've, I've learned, well, there's a few things, but I can come back to it. Or mm -hmm. one, one of the things they don't tell you um, is you don't really, I might get in trouble for saying this, but you don't really need to practice eight hours a day. <laughs> you practice, depending on what you want to do. If you want to be the next uh, Hillary Hahn, maybe you do need to practice eight hours a day. But if your goal is not to play every Paganini Caprice and Yazai Caprice at the drop of a dime at three in the morning, you don't need to do that to yourself. You know, figure out what it is you need to do and be as good as you can for the skill set that you need to have. So you, you could be a really good, adequate uh, player on your instrument, but leave enough time to work on uh, social media and, and, and promoting yourself, work on uh, technology if that's what you want to do, work on improvisation. It, it, you don't have to, you, you have to allocate your time differently based on what your goal is in life. I um, hope that makes yeah. sense. I think that also that's that's important to to note that uh, I am the type of person that that does like to think that I could do all things absolutely perfectly, but that is not actually possible for any of us. And therefore, you also have to know what is the best use of your time because you won't be able to do it all. So then, <laughs> yes, that's very very true, especially these days. Um, then it gets out of hand. When you have kids, you have to every second counts. So you have to. <laughs> Yes. So um, you are going to be playing a, a big release concert for something that is coming out um, soon. And I have a couple of questions that are that are related to that release and kind of how you function with your group. Can you tell us a little bit about your band and, and what's coming up for you guys and the big release? <laughs> so so um, when I'm, um, let's see, in the 90s, I, I finished my bachelor's degree and I wanted to make a CD. Uh, you can explain to your listeners what a CD is at some point. <laughs> so it's uh, not streaming. It's crazy. <laughs> so it was like '98, and I had a few songs written. It was kind of a jazz fusion instrumental thing, and I recorded it in the summer before I moved to New York with a bunch of local Cleveland musicians. Cleveland has some great local musicians, so I came to New York and I was looking for a. I wanted to play live, and I had the CD in my hand, and I was looking for musicians to play with. Um, and I wasn't sure what this was, project was going to be. Um, and I went through different players, trying to search for the sound and, and search for like-minded people, which is hard to find, you know. And I kept, it kept morphing and morphing, and I started adding more vocals to the songs. Um, and eventually, I, I, long story, but the band was called Stratospherius, which is a play on words, Stratovarius, and the music's up in the stratosphere. So it's like, it's rock, progressive rock, fusion, and uh, started making more CDs, more albums, because I love writing music and making records or CDs, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, it's gone through many uh, personnel changes and eras over 20 years now, which is crazy. Um, so the group has developed, our sound has developed, it's become more of a cohesive um, kind of thing. It took a long time to really find the signature sound of that group. And it's mostly my um, songs uh, with some 
uh, collaborations. And we're, uh, we just released, or we're about to release on May 19th, a double live CD, DVD, Blu-ray from two performances we did at the Prague Stock Festival in uh, Rahway, New Jersey, which uh, we played a, few, a bunch of years in a row. It's a great festival. It takes place in October every year. And we are doing a CD release party at the Iridium on May 31st. That's uh, the Iridium Jazz Club in Manhattan. I think it's on 50th and Broadway. So yeah, uh, three years in the making. It's a long project I've been working on for a long time. And I learned to video edit during COVID. So I edited all this footage together, two hours. <laughs> That's a lot of editing. <laughs> It's basically my passion project. Uh, this band is, it, you know, when I started exploring all this music I wanted to play, I couldn't sit around and wait for someone to hire me to, to play this kind of stuff because it didn't exist. I needed to create my own musical universe. And it drives me crazy, but it also feeds, feeds my soul. You know, for me, I yeah. need to have this outlet to create and play what I want to play. Mm -hmm. So with your bandmates, when you are doing that, it's it's something that while I I am happy to say I was able to see a little bit of the, the DVD just yesterday early, so yay, and everyone will really love it. I loved what I've seen so far. Um, and something struck me because I know that, of course, you've played, um, you know, you've had background in guitar and obviously fiddle, uh, violin. Are there things that you feel uh that you still think uh when you guys are coming up with arrangements for things that you've written that will fit better on the guitar that is that is a, advantageous to have on that instrument as opposed to the violin because you are playing a seven string instrument so you have a lot of flexibility are there things that you feel like the the electric violin is better suited to or how do you make those distinctions between what you're going to put where yeah I, I didn't talk about my instrument my electric violin actually i have it here um Beautiful. So, oh, yes. Wood, flying the seven string fretted violin with uh, it goes um, B flat, uh, F, C, and then G, D, A, E, like a regular violin. Um, and it also, I, I, I don't have it now, but it connects, like I sing and play at the same time. So, there's a harness system. So, I don't have to put my chin on the instrument, which is very convenient. Um, so, there's certain kind of runs that you can only do on a violin, not only, but are much easier to play on a violin than on a guitar or bass. And I, my band gets mad at me when I write those kinds of runs for the, for them. <laughs> I just like, I come up with some cool parts and like, you expect me to play that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but with this instrument, you can, it's kind of interchangeable with guitar because I can play low power chords and double what the guitar is doing a lot of the time. Um, there are certain chordal things, obviously, I can't do. You know, I can't hit six notes at the same time unless I break a chord. So there's those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Um, but what's interesting about electric violin with effects, it can function like a guitar in a band. It could function like a keyboard in a band. It can take on different roles at different times. Um, yeah. So, so really, then, no, please continue. Yeah. No, no I'm done. <laughs> basically just so yeah so what you were mentioning because i was thinking about that while i was watching the dvd is that like really um some of it does come down to the fact that like you're saying the runs like the facility that we have on, on a violin for the runs is just really lovely i can imagine that's a lot of fun um <laughs> but then the the guitar can kind of play more of the chordal 
stuff that is that is harder even with the seven strings because that's what i was thinking was that maybe it's easier for you to do guitar style things because of the the seven strings but it's still that would be the the breakdown of the difference more yeah i mean there's ways around it if, you know mm -hmm. if, you're, if if you're playing a nice you know chordal pad on a, on a guitar you can do it with broken chords on a violin or if you use a delay pedal or you know some other means you can get around it it's just an, a creative problem solving you know but yeah. it depends on the texture you want you can't really get a strummed guitar texture on a violin mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's kind of yeah how that that difference breaks down so one of the things that i i i wanted to ask you because you clearly you've been you know so creative in what you've done with your career and and how all these things all these pieces have fit together and i'm sure you probably didn't have all this planned out like from when you were 16 so i'm sure this has evolved over time um what do you feel uh is something that you have seen really be motivational or or helpful that you think more young people that are you know that are pursuing music should be aware of are there things that you're like I think more young students should be either thinking about this with their practice or you know, their goals, or, or what do you think is good motivation for, for kids that are, or young people, young adults, you know what I mean? I, I would say don't make up your mind too soon. Yeah. Like, be mm -hmm. open to different styles of music. Uh, don't rule anything out. I mean, you could have your your true north. Your goal. if you're really passionate about something and you're 15 and you know that this is a style of music I, I want to play as a career, um, this is me. That's fine, but study other styles because to make a living as a musician, you're called in to do all kinds of stuff. And I it's almost, I, I've never been an actor, but I look at it like being an actor. I get asked to do bluegrass stuff, that fiddly chuck a chuck a kind of stuff all the time. And while I didn't grow up in a bluegrass family of a fiddle, a family of fiddlers, far from it, um, you know, I've had to cop that style and kind of fake it. Mm -hmm. you, know, um, yeah. you know, learn learn Motown string lines and disco string lines because you're going to have to play weddings. <laughs> That's actually yeah. a lot of fun. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I basically there shouldn't be an attitude or I'm the, the too cool for school kind of attitude. Do you know what I mean? A, a lot of young people or, or even college, they, they get into this headspace. And then when you go out into the real world, it's not that you got to honor whatever music you're hired to play and whatever people you're working with in any given time. Yeah. yeah. There's, no, there's no small jobs, you know, no small gigs. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, our, our lives as professional musicians are very strange and I, um, <laughs> that has advantages and disadvantages, shall we say, what would you say, um, is one of the things that you love most about what you, what you do with your life, what you do for a living? What is one of your, what is something that motivates you as a professional musician that keeps you doing all of this? Well, I, I'm at the point where there's really nobody I work with in my circle that I personally don't like very very few people i i love the people i'm working with 99 percent of the time and i i love the unpredictability you never know what's around the corner maybe living in new york helps but now you know with the internet you can you can become a recording artist on the internet or a teaching artist no matter where you live but yeah i like the the 
unpredictability of it that you can get a, a, that call tomorrow for something amazing that you never would have seen coming, you know, that could change your life. That living on the edge of that is always fun. Um, it's also fun to keep up with younger generations of, of younger people because um, in New York, there's always, it's a Mecca. So there's always people at the top of their game coming in uh, who want to play, want to work. And it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you practicing. And I like being challenged um, and not resting on any laurels, you know. Um, and also just trying to always push myself to learn something new, like video editing. I still have a long list of things I want to learn. I want to get better at Ableton because all my students are using that software. Um, you know, th there's always something new to learn and you got to keep learning all your life, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that is, that is really excellent advice. And I think that helps us counter some of the, the challenging things about our career too, so, <laughs> which is also very good. Um, Besides the fact that you have this big uh, release show coming out um, and the, the DVD and the, the CD coming out, uh, you mentioned a few places that you teach. Are there other projects or things that you want people to know about or ways that they can sort of find you if they're interested in, you know, lessons or working with you in a summer camp? Where would they find you? Obviously, all this will be on your website, but. So I'll, I'll list a few things. And I also forgot to mention uh, my other big original project is uh, the Sweet Plantain Quartet. Mm. Um, that's not really my, I, I, I've written for it, but it's mostly, um, the, the other violinist, Eddie Venegas. It's a Latin jazz string quartet I've been in since 2010. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've toured all over the world and we, we mix, uh, Latin jazz, hip hop, classical influences. Um, and that group, uh, sweetplantain.com, we, we go to schools and, and do a lot of workshops and, and perform. Um, my website is the easiest way to find is Joe D violin. That's D like dog, Joe D violin.com. It's better okay. than trying to spell my last name. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is there. You know, you can mm -hmm. take lessons from me. Um, you can hire me for a recording project if you want. And uh, this summer I'll be teaching at Mark Wood rock orchestra camp, which is MWROC.com. That's in Olathe, Kansas from July 9th to 16th. And then my wife, Yulia, who uh, is a violinist with the New York Philharmonic, we're going to be teaching at the Nelly Shkolnikova Academy in France, um, first week of August. Beautiful. That is lovely. That's more classical based, but I'm going to be the, the token weird guy there. So. <laughs> you will be providing something very, very wonderful. And it'll be in France. So that's, that's doubly beautiful. <laughs> Onlykovaacademy.com. S-H-K. Yeah. Should I spell it? or <laughs> No, it's all right. I'll put it in the show notes for people so that they can click the link and hopefully that'll be easier. Molly um, was our, our teacher at, at IU uh, and a bunch mm. of her, she died of cancer five years ago and a bunch of her yeah. students formed this academy in her honor. It's That's a, wonderful. So. Yeah, I think I, I've heard about that from somebody else. I'd forgotten about that, but yes, that is that is really lovely. I forgot one question that I, that I like to... I have asked to a couple of my guests, and I feel like your answer on this one would be really interesting to me. Um, in, in music, and I'm sure some of the parents and students who are listening to this will probably have heard of this discussion about how much it's appropriate to imitate others. And is it a danger if you imitate too much? And how do you feel about 
uh, whether it's good to imitate or not good to imitate. You should try to be, you know, how do you feel about that, that relationship between originality and learning by imitating? That's a really great question. Um, well, nothing is created in a vacuum. You are what you eat. We're all the sum of everything we've heard in our lives, you know, whether we are consciously aware of it or not. So, but as a developing artist, you go through a stage where you're imitating your heroes and that's normal. Um, but eventually it's good to get past that um, and try to find your own voice. You could, you could hear, I mean, I, I listen to my favorite artists and I hear, I could list 10 influences that I'm hearing, you know, different, different flavor notes in their, in their music. That's fine. You know, um, but it kind of happens naturally. You can't force originality. It just kind of evolves. Maybe the way to avoid that is don't just get hung up on one artist that you love. Listen to a lot of different people. And, and, you know, for me, I went through phases where I was obsessed with this person. And then I was more obsessed with that person's music and, that all kind of got mixed together in my brain, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like compost that turns into soil that then stops. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we're all, you know, we're all the, standing on the shoulders of the generations of musicians that came before us. You know, we're all product. What we listen to, you are what you eat, you know? Yeah, I, I love that way of putting it. So that is that is lovely. Well, thank you for this. It has been wonderful to talk to you. And I am sure we will find some reason to talk again on this show with some other questions because there's way too much to say. <laughs> so and I, I, I really loved uh, listening to your CD. And I am very excited for all the stuff that you have coming up. And I'll put all those a lot of things in the show notes for people that are listening. So um, that would be lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I could talk about music forever. You know, this is <laughs> <laughs> same here. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time and care that Joe puts into his work with young musicians and in sharing his years of experience, exploring the varied ways that string instruments can be a part of many genres like rock, jazz, and also new styles that are just, frankly, impossible to box into a category these days. As we mentioned, both of us are very familiar with how flexible and open-minded professional musicians are asked and expected to be these days, and if you're a young musician, or the parent of one, I really can't emphasize his advice enough that it's important to keep an open mind and explore lots of different styles of great music out there, while also pursuing excellence and good technique on whatever instrument it is you've chosen. Be curious, and it's really amazing what can come of it. As Joe mentioned, he has a big release party show at the Iridium in New York on May 31st, and details are in the show notes. Check out his website, and all the other links will be there as well. You can always reach out to chat with me via Instagram. I am at joannaferrar802, and I love to chat with people about the show and music in general. You can also, of course, find more about us and the work that we do here on the podcast at www.musicparentpodcast.com or on my personal site, joannaferrar.com. Thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time. Thank you.